This episode is brought to you by Peacock, presenting critically acclaimed originals for your Emmy consideration. It's crazy to say this, but I've been doing this now for a long time. You know, I still am just as hungry and um, I feel just as sort of, uh, it's just as vital to me now as it ever has been. And um, I know that this one was special. I just know. I just knew, I knew making it. I knew, I know seeing it. I know just from what it's about, how it's approached. Um, how it's dealt with and how it was made and, and the community that was formed, it's special. Um, and and I, I know that these folks are special. I Like I said before, I'm really, I'm really an ensemble-based guy. And, and I believe that, you know, you're, you're as good as the group of the people that you're with. And, and, and this group of people is unlike any other group that I've worked with. I, I, I think when you th- when you look at the the actresses, all of them that play the, the sisters in this movie, what they do is extraordinary. The spirit is extraordinary. Hello, and welcome to the Awardists from Entertainment Weekly, taking you inside this year's top contenders for the Oscars and more of the industry's biggest awards. I'm Clarissa Cruz, EW's executive editor. I'm joined by my co-host, Josh Rothkopf, EW's senior movies editor. Hi, Josh. Hi, Clarissa. Today, we are presenting Clarissa's interview with John Bernthal. You know him from things like The Punisher and Ford vs. Ferrari, but he does this amazing supporting turn in King Richard as the great tennis coach, Rick Macy. And That performance that he does in King Richard really deserves a lot of attention before we go any further, right? Not just for the way he's changed his voice and is a persuasive athlete and coach, but for the costuming and for the socks, right? I know you love this performance. The socks and the tiny shorts. You can't forget the tiny shorts, Josh. (laughs) The tiny shorts, exactly. The thing that I love so much about this performance is just, you know, John's so known for these very kind of physical, aggressive, sometimes mean roles. And he plays the exact opposite in this. I'm not saying that Rick Macy is a pushover. He's not at all. But I think it was a completely different turn for him. And he just did a great job. I mean, I forgot that it was him. And I think, isn't that the highest <laughs> Isn't it the highest compliment that you can give an actor when, when they've sort of disappeared into a role so much that you just forget that it's them? Yes, it is the highest. In fact, I can think of only one higher, which I thought when I saw this performance and his version of Rick Macy, I actually forgot about Will Smith. Like I forgot, I forgot about the rest of King Richard and was just sort of like, can there be a movie with John Bernthal playing Rick Macy? Like an entire movie. And we can have the Capriati years. And we can have the, the Williams sisters. His performance is so vivid and it's the kind of thing. And I think that we've touched on this a few times about King Richard, about how the performances are really leavening it and making it a much more sophisticated film than maybe the story or the trajectory of the plot would indicate. These performances, especially Anjanou Ellis, also... John Bernthal and Will Smith himself, they're making this film a lot more sophisticated than I think it has any right to be. Mm-hmm. Along with our interview with John Bernthal, we'll chat a little bit about the best supporting actor race and our favorites and front runners and maybe some other candidates that are just on the bubble. But before we get to that, let's talk about any developments that have happened in the race. And I think where we should start is probably with the National Society of Film Critics. And once again, they have given their highest award to Drive My Car. That's mm-hmm. Ryusi Hamaguchi's new Japanese film that's a little over three hours long. That is nonetheless mm-hmm. 
winning the hearts of critics. It has done something, I think, that only five films in the history of these awards bodies has done, which is it's won the New York Film Critics Circle Award, the Los Angeles Film Critics Award, and also now the National Society. And the films that have done that in the past I mean, I think the first one was Goodfellas, but it was Goodfellas, Schindler's List, L.A. Confidential, The Hurt Locker, and The Social Network. And now Drive My Car. And Drive My Car is the only foreign language film to have done that in the history of these awards bodies. So it's a very significant movie, and I'm here to say that it's, I think, definitely worth all these awards. I love this film, but before I keep on yammering, Clarissa, tell tell me your thoughts on this film. I know you like it, too. I do really like it. I was going into like, oh, three hours, you know, I don't know where you watched it, Josh, but I I was watching it, you know, at home on my computer. And, you know, the combination of three hours and watching it at home on my computer usually, you know, leads to Betty Bye for me. But that was not (laughs) the case for this. I was so taken with it from the first scene on and um, just really loved the performances. I know this sounds like not a compliment, but I love how slow and simmering it was. And so emotionally devastating um, in the way that the events of the film unfold. I just, I just really loved it. I thought the performances were amazing. I thought that all of the main cast were great. And I also really loved the night. And I wonder if this is what the raves and, and critics are responding to, but it's sort of like a story about acting and about directing. And if anything, Hollywood always loves movies about Hollywood, or at least you know, the acting and filmmaking and, and directing process. And so I think this in a way gets to that. But I don't think that would mean anything if it didn't have the emotional impact and just the such strong feeling, um, I think, powering through the movie that, that I really responded to. I think you're right, too, about Hollywood loving stories about acting. And maybe that's a good sign for it going forward into more general uh, awards bodies like the Oscars or whatever, where it's suddenly a factor in these races. Maybe for people who haven't seen Drive My Car, uh, here's just a little sketch of it. It's a movie about a theater director who, in the very first 10 minutes of the film, we discover his wife dies and he is in a period of grieving. And he puts on a production of Uncle Vanya in Hiroshima. And when he goes to Hiroshima to put this theater production on, he is assigned a driver, like a chauffeur, who's going to take him from where he's living to the theater complex and back. And it's sort of partly their insurance and partly a perk of being the guest director. And he forges a bond with this younger woman that I wouldn't really call a romantic one so much as a, almost like a father daughter. It's hard to say. She's his driver. She's his driver. She is his driver and she's a very good driver. And he becomes impressed with the fact that he never feels the movement of the car when they're on the road. It really captures that mood you get into when you're driving and the Zen that you can sometimes be in and you're in closed space where it's safe and you can listen to music or not and you can have a conversation. And some of the deepest conversations in this movie actually happen in cars and they happen in the spaces between places where you're not one place, you're not another place, you're, you're, you're not alone, you're not together. And so it really, it really captures that if you love driving and if, uh, actually if you live in a city like Los Angeles, there is something, I think that's very, <laughs> there's something that's very car centric about drive my car and also about the way that cars sometimes liberate us from our hangups and are a place of transition. And so that's just a thumbnail sketch of what this movie does. And I will say this just, 
everyone I've told about the three hour running time, they groan just like I did, just like you have. And, and they, they watch it and then they're convinced by this movie. That's how strong it is that even if you know in advance how long it is, you begin to luxuriate in that running time. You begin to realize that movies, if they weren't rushed along all the time, they could probably say so much more. They could be less driven by momentum and more focused on the nuances of performances and explore tangents. And there's no wasted space in the movie. But I will say this. I saw it at the New York Film Festival back in September. And right before it, I had just seen Come On, Come On, which is a beautiful short movie with, <laughs> with you know, great performances and very tight. That's a great day of movie watching. Right. It was a great day of movie watching. And so it really had that to compete with. I was coming out of this movie. I had tears streaming down my face. I loved uh, everything about Come On, Come On. I'm an uncle myself, and I had that connection with my nephew. And then I went right into Drive My Car, which just blew me away, which was in a way almost even better than Come On, Come On. So yes to all that stuff. Do you think, I mean, put on your prognosticator hat for a second. There's no right or wrong answer here. But do you think that it has a shot at the Oscars? I think so. I know a lot of the best picture contenders, the front runners are pretty well set. But I do think there's always like that surprise slot that can often go to a foreign film. I um, mean, that, and that's happened in, in history. And I think that there is enough rapturous response to this movie and the passion behind it. That reminds me sort of the groundswell behind um, Parasite. I think that passion, it's, it's hard to sort of measure that, but, um, and it's, and it feels, you know, anecdotal, especially now that we're not around people all that much, but, um, you know, just, it, it just seems like this movie has that and I could see it grabbing one of those slots. You know, it seems to be being promoted as a, as a film that's a lot more accessible and approachable than you would imagine. Parasite is a more audience friendly film in that it's a thriller, you know, a social satire. I would really, truly be gobsmacked if Drive My Car won Oscars outright. But I do think that we're talking about uh, nominations in multiple categories, maybe screenplay where it won a Ken, the Best Scenario Award, and also perhaps for Best Director for Hamaguchi himself. I have to say also, as a voter in that group of the National Society of Film Critics, I was very proud of our group when we gave our Best Supporting Actor Award to Anders Danielson Lee, who is an amazing supporting actor in a movie called The Worst Person in the World, which is a Norwegian film, a rom-com, but unlike any rom-com you've ever seen. And his performance in it is extraordinary, as is the performance of the lead actor of that film, Renata Rainsby. And so when we're talking about supporting actors, I feel this year... The field is, it's a little more fluid than in past years. Yeah. It's funny that you say fluid. I think most people would say chaos. <laughs> yeah. For sure, it's chaotic. Let's start with Cody Smith McPhee. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, well, yeah, I think he's the front runner. He is the front. He's won several, he won in New York. He's won several awards so far. And he's the supporting actor in The Power of the Dog. There are other supporting performances in that film that I think are just as good in a weird way. Jesse Plemons as well. But Cody Smith-McPhee, for some reason, everything is coalescing around him. His performance in The Power of the Dog is really the one that turns the whole film. It's the one that transforms the film, I think, from a tense romantic drama into something more like a thriller. And uh, his character has 
uh, secret motivations that are so beautifully played by him in this. And I remember Cody Smith McPhee in The Road as the cute kid in The Apocalypse and seeing him mature into this very thoughtful, careful, deliberate actor with a lot of subtext and confidence enough to not be overly showy with his affectations and line readings and emotions and really let the power of his eyes and physicality carry the day. I thought that performance was great and kind of fitting in a jigsaw puzzle way. It, it, I think it allows an actor like Benedict Cumberbatch or, or Kirsten Dunst to do their work because he is so quiet and he is so insistent on the periphery. It's a perfect definition of what a supporting performance does and that it gives latitude, I think, to the leads to explore dimensions of their character that they wouldn't otherwise I know you were knocked out by this film. Yeah, no, I loved it. And and exactly what you're saying, Josh. I mean, that is a definition of supporting actor. And I and you know, with Benedict and Kirsten both being solidly in the awards competition, I mean, obviously it worked. Um I I did love this film. I did love Cody in it. We called it back in our November issue when we were doing our preview, um just breaking him out. We've been a fan of his from the beginning and and it's well deserved and it's great seeing him get all the accolades. Um, but there are other people. There's another person who's solidly in for a nomination, and that would be, I'm very happy to say this, Troy Kotzer from Coda. I love that movie. I know, I, <laughs> I know, yeah. I know you might have some mixed feelings about the movie, but, but I think you agree that Troy is fantastic in it. He's so fantastic yeah. in this movie. And I, I mean, I, I want to let you talk about Troy, but I was just thinking about Coda today because we are on the eve of another Sundance, another mm-hmm. couch. Sundance, Couch Sundance 2. But I do remember watching Coda last year at Sundance, at Sundance, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. And uh, and just being so moved by that film. And it's not to say that I don't like the film at all. It's just that it, it was a very, um, it worked on me in a very, you know, crowd pleasing way. And Troy, I think, is definitely the most sophisticated part of it, right? Yeah, no, we, we do agree on that. I went into it like knowing that it was going to be a little bit of one of those heartstring pullers. Um, but his scenes with, uh, with his daughter, I thought were fantastic. And I think he kind of grounds the movie. Um, he's the heart of it, kind of like the gruff heart of it. Gruff. And, and also, I think he allows us to do something which the film desperately needed, which is laugh a little bit. If you don't have Troy Kotzer in that film, <laughs> it becomes a very, very sincere movie about a yeah. mother and a daughter and a daughter who can hear and parents who are deaf leaving home and just describing that is heartbreaking. But Troy Kotzer, and it's a combination of his like shaggy physicality and the beard and, and the sort of blue collarness about him and just the approachability and his sense of humor. He allows us to laugh at the condition of being deaf. And I don't mean laugh at that condition, laugh at those people so much as understand it from their point of view as a condition that they live through happily and grow through and that there's joy in a life of someone who is deaf and pain as well. And so I think he brings a lot of the kind of vivid dimensionality. And I think he just elevates it. And that's not a small feat. So I really like that his campaign isn't slowing down, that it seems to be gaining momentum. Who else are you thinking? I think the rest of the three slots are kind of up for grabs after the SAG nominations, which we talked about last week. There are a lot of surprises. Okay. Well, just to riff on some more front runners, I really don't think we can count Belfast out. Mm-hmm. I mean, Belfast didn't have a great time at the SAGs. But when you're talking about those two performances, Jamie Dornan and Kieran Hines, 
those are really performances that people remember seeing that film. And Belfast's lights aren't dimming just yet. So people are going to watch those films and they're going to be moved by Kieran, Kieran Hines' scenes with Jude Hill. Those scenes are exquisite. And I think anyone who's ever talked to a young person or has a relationship with their grandparents knows what that's like. And that kind of surrogate bond is so beautifully wrought in that film. I also think that what Jamie Dornan is doing in the film is, is very tricky, very difficult. Obviously, Katrina Balfe is a force of nature in that film and the anchor and the mother courage. But in order for her to occupy that place, I really do think that she has to play off someone like Jamie Dornan, who is a good husband, but sometimes a wayward one and sometimes literally gone from the scene, but still burns an impression. Um, Those two performances are going to certainly factor into the race. Although I love the fact that they made room in their absence (laughs) for two other performances that I like more. But do you want to talk about those performances? I know you like them as well. Wait, are you talking about the A-listers? That, uh, <laughs> the, the, the A-list surprises that, yes. that got in its sag. Um, we're talking about Bradley Cooper for his turn in Licorice Pizza and Ben Affleck for his turn in Tender Bar. Obviously, very much enjoyed both of these performances. Um, ben is our current cover star on our Contenders issue. So we liked it from the very beginning. I mean, he... And we called it. And we called we, it. We called it. <laughs> <laughs> Easy to say now. We are holding our breath waiting for those SAG nominations to come out. But yeah, no, it makes us look very smart and prescient. And we're very proud of that. But it's not for no reason. I mean, I think this is his best performance in a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was fantastic as Uncle Charlie. Just sort of like the uncle everyone wishes that they had. But, you know, on top of it being a very likable character, I think... He, Ben is just very comfortable in this role. Like it, it's, it felt very natural in in a way that played to his strengths as an actor, um, which some of his other roles I think maybe haven't. And I do think um, he deserved that spot at SAG and hopefully um, converted when the Oscar nominations come. But yeah, I definitely think that that was a good call. And what yeah. I mean, what do you think? I think you're right. I think he he finally let himself relax into a role, which is so rare for him. Like he's always been. The energy's just always been off for me. And I, I like Ben Affleck in a lot of movies, but he's sometimes he's been too uptight. I think about the rom-coms or so, and sometimes he's too glib. Like a, you have a movie about the end of the world, like Armageddon or the Summer of All Fears. And he's I wide. love Armageddon, Josh. I'm sorry. I, I mean, I love Armageddon. <laughs> Dude, I love it too. And, and, and that's part of the bayhem of it all. That's part yeah. of, you know, the direction of it. But I have been waiting for Ben Affleck to kind of relax and maybe it's a middle-aged phase or maybe it's just the happiness that's happening in his life right now. But he does seem to be a little more comfortable in his own skin and that's allowed for a richer performance than he generally gives. I love his directing and I'm glad to see the acting catching up with that. And the other performance that I was alluding to before was Bradley Cooper in Licorice Pizza, where... It's a different focus where Bradley, I think, has done great performances, especially in movies like American Sniper and American Hustle. Actually, I liked him in as well. But he um, realizes that a little Bradley goes a long way. You know, he's <laughs> in that manic mode when he's yeah. playing John Peters on Licorice Pizza. Oh and gosh. Paul Thomas Anderson, who's a connoisseur of those kind of movies, understands that. And he gave him like, I don't know, something like 10 minutes of screen time. I don't, I don't know what the actual two scenes, right. And every scene, every one of them is just high octane. And it's, it's again, an, an example of an A-list star understanding their potency, understanding <laughs> that a little goes a long way. And I think that there was something that was very 
revealing about those SAG nominations, revealing about SAG in the sense that they are sort of forwarding in an implicit way a definition of what acting is. And acting sometimes means being a veteran performer who's going to give a little bit of space to younger up-and-comers like like Cooper Hoffman and, and Alana Haim or, you know, it's someone who's going to make a connection to a younger actor like a Ty Sheridan in Tender Bar and bridge generations like that. I think that that's a really cool generational definition of what acting can be. Before we end this discussion of supporting actors, we have to talk about the elephants in the room. There's just simply no way for us to avoid it. And also a deserved performance, Jared Leto in House of Gucci, getting all sorts of attention, continuing to be in the conversation, which in and of itself, I think, is a kind of victory for that performance. This is an actor who went into that movie with such a weird, firm conviction that all the prosthetics and all of his strangled delivery and everything about that <laughs> performance was actually going to work and that it was going to uh, touch people in a very unique way. And it did. It, it did. <laughs> like, say what we will, say what I will about that film. It, it is the kind of deep dive, that kind of totally transformative deep dive that goes all the way back to Lon Chaney and Phantom of the Opera and the silent era. But it's, that's what Hollywood is also about. It's about actors plunging into that kind of total transformation. Mm-hmm. Never mind if it's merited or not by the script or the material. I mean, I have to say, I want to watch the movie that Jared Leto is in. You know, like yeah. his his silver, like he he seemed to me like uh, in a different movie from the rest of that cast, and so I kind of want to see that movie, which I think is a nod to what he was doing. I mean, I, I get it. I just think like tonally, it was a little a little bit jarring um, with the rest of the performances, but I appreciate it for that. Yeah. There are a couple of scenes where I, I get the sense that the other actor that Jared is playing against is understanding that this actor is going way off the deep end and they have to up their game. I'm thinking about that one scene with Jeremy Irons, who is also someone who can really... <laughs> slice the ham thick. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you remember Damage and all those crazy performances that he did. So, you know, Dead Ringers. I was going to say the twin movie. You remember the name. Yes, (laughs) brilliant. So there's that one scene where they're both kind of like going head to head. And I wish the whole movie could have been like that. I really do. Mm -hmm. But I mean, those, I think those are, that's a really good encapsulation of the front runners. If we were to look at a list of maybe people who are just outside the bubble, with a little bit of pushing could get there. Is there one that you wish was more in conversation? I wouldn't say he's on the bubble because I, I haven't heard anything about him at all, really. But I really like Benny Safdie and Licorice Pizza. And, you know, I, I like that movie, as you know. I know you love that movie. Um, but I was really taken with his performance in that. There, there hasn't been any talk about it, but I, I'm just saying from a pure enjoyment and, you know, just watching him in that movie, I did feel like he stretched and it was a really more powerful performance than people are giving credit for, um, just because there's so much good stuff in, in that movie. I did like that. I also appreciate Jonah Hill in Don't Look Up. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think it's going to happen, you know, but, um, but I mean, so much, I mean, he's going toe-to-toe with all of these A-listers, and he's just kind of killing it. I thought he was fantastic. I mean, it, it, it's a very, you know, kind of broad, over-the-top performance, but that's not always easy either. And I appreciate him. And then on the other end, there's Mark Rylance, also in Don't Look Up, which, I mean, I just found it fascinating. You know, he disappeared and spooky and and really funny. And so I I guess those are the three 
that I wanted to call out. I'm not, I don't think any of them are actually in uh, in danger of upsetting any of the, the front runners that we mentioned, but I, I do like them. And then there's obviously our guest today, John Bernthal, who you know, I adore. Yes. And just, um, you know, we, we already spoke about that. So I didn't, I didn't want to belabor that, but I thought he was fantastic there. Those are great, great performances. And I, I mean, when you're talking about Mark Rylance, you're talking about one of the best actors on the planet. He's amazing in that film. And Jonah Hill, I do think of as an A-lister in a way. And, and he's done very tricky performances. I remember him in Moneyball and I remember him in The Wolf of Wall Street, both of which oh, yeah, were that's right. He's capable of really investing these performances on the periphery with a lot of heart and depth and complexity. And so... As much as I, I wanted him to have more screen time in that movie, yes, he's great. If I had to name one performance on the bubble, it would be that of the actor Vincent Landon. I'm murdering the French. He is in the movie Titan. And Titan, as it was presented to me after it won the Palme d'Or, when I finally got a chance to see it, was this crazy movie from the director of Raw, Julia Ducourneau. And it was about this woman who has sex with a car. And so I went into it with that prism. But what I found watching it was that the movie really kind of sneakily was about compassion by this one fireman who shows her a bond of paternity and takes her into his arms and has no judgment for her. And at watching that movie, I found myself thinking, this is really his movie. This is a movie about someone opening up his heart, regardless of being lied to and regardless of being manipulated. And I just, his performance is so extraordinary in Titan. His name again is Vincent Landon. He's factored, I think, in a lot of critics' lists. There is no world in which that performance will make it into the Oscar bracket. But I do know that everyone who's talking about Titan is talking about that amazing performance by that guy, and it's him. And that's what's so great about the supporting actor race this year. Lots to choose from, no real distinct front runner except for maybe Cody. And that's the way I wish it was with every race. If I'm being completely <laughs> honest, I yeah. wish that it would certainly make our jobs a lot more fun. I agree. I, I really like talking about this category because it does seem like the possibilities are, are still pretty, pretty open. But that said, let's move on to our guest, John Bernthal, who plays Rick Macy in King Richard. This episode is brought to you by Peacock, presenting critically acclaimed originals for your Emmy consideration. Stream limited series Apples Never Fall, starring Annette Bening and Sam Neill, and The Tattooist of Auschwitz, based on the best-selling novel. Plus, TV movie Mr. Monk's Last Case, and the stop-motion animated In the Know, from Mike Judge, Brandon Gardner, and Zach Woods. Finally, head to the Highlands with Alan Cumming in the hit competition series The Trade. Peacock is your consideration destination this Emmy season. I'm here with John Bernthal, star of King Richard and a few other films this fall. Welcome, John. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, no problem. The movie centers on Richard Williams, father of Venus and Serena Williams, and how he raised these champions. But I think it's more a movie about family and parenting than it is about sports or tennis. Was that something that spoke to you about the movie as well? 100%. Uh, absolutely. And, and I think in, in, in really ultimately a completely unsentimental way, I think this film absolutely is this sort of meditation on family and on parenthood and explores really the nooks and crannies of it. I'm a father myself and it's the most important job that I have. And um, I love being a dad. And I think one thing 
that goes hand in hand with being a parent is the fact that you are going to make mistakes and that sometimes it's not pretty. And I love that this film didn't shy away from that. I think as far as the athletics go, I think that this film just really kind of explores the full spectrum from the toxic to the sublime beauty that athletics and youth athletics can sort of be for a family and be for young people. Um, it's something I'm going through with my own kids now. I'm an ex-athlete. You know, both Ray and I, the director of the film, played college baseball. And, you know, I played sports all through high school. I boxed or played football. And I think it's sort of a, a point where we really connected on. I think that the film really just celebrates faith and the power of family. And I think that folks are going to go in with a lot of preconceptions and misconceptions based sort of on this sort of vilification of Richard Williams that was sort of jammed down our throats. You know, these false ideas and these misconceptions, again, of what we think this kind of, um, you know, overbearing kind of taskmaster father is. I think we see that this is something very, very different. And um, it's, uh, I think it's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I have two kids. And I was watching it because, and you know, as a parent, you make these kinds of decisions all day. You know, are you raising them to be good people? Are you raising them to achieve? And I think this, this movie really grapples with the balance between those two things because you, you know, he obviously wanted to raise champions, but it was also just as important that he raises nice women and, you know, good people. Absolutely. It's absolutely, uh, it's sort of treated with the same vigor and the same energy and you can't really have one without the other and you use one to support the other and vice versa. Look, I think for me, you know, with the character that I play specifically, you know, I, I think there's so much joy in him, so much, so much kind of love for the game. Um, but I think it's kind of an interesting sort of mirror to the entertainment business. I think for so long, you know, I've always felt a bit like an outsider in, in this business. And I, I felt like, you know, I think we all sort of feel like maybe we don't belong that much. And then all of a sudden you get, uh, you know, a little bit of heat or, or, or things start to turn. And all of a sudden, these same people that were kind of rejecting you now all of a sudden, you know, want a piece, you know, and, and I, I think that's very much sort of a theme of this film. But what I love so much about sort of this character, the way that Rick is portrayed in the film and, is that, you, you know, ultimately, you know, he just he, he falls in love with this family that he works for. He falls in love with these young women and he believes in them as if they were his own. I think ultimately he wants them to be successful, not to, you know, not for his own, you know, pocketbook, but, you know, he wants them to be successful because he loves them so much and, and, and he believes in this family. And I really love being able to play around with that. Yeah, no, no I think that definitely comes through his love for the family. And, you know, in your sort of making of the movie, I think there definitely was a paternal vibe towards your interpretation of his character. And in relation to the girls, I mean, did that expand to off screen as well? 100%. I'm so in awe. And I love those two young women so much. Um, They're so wise and, and talented and beautiful and committed you know, and they come from such wonderful families. I got enormously close with both of their families, but also, you know, you have to mention, you know, all the sisters, everyone, they, they, they came with such commitment and a willingness to play. And I really think that, you know, again, I, I my favorite thing about making movies is, uh, you know, you come to set and you got people from all walks of life, all races, all religions, all political backgrounds, sexual orientations. You know, you got, you know, teamsters and, and grips and makeup folks. And, you know, but you're all coming there with this sort of um, collective uh, artistic uh, endeavor. And sometimes, you know, 
when it's successful, I believe you get rid of all the hierarchy nonsense. And it's really a place where everyone is not only welcome, but encouraged. And it's demanded that everybody kind of comes forward and flies and dares to fail and risk collectively and support. And that's when you can start really playing. And this was really that project. I fell in love with the script. And then every single person I met from then on was just a sort of series of, of beautiful surprises and inspirations for me. And, um, you know, I, it was truly, truly a beautiful, beautiful process. Yeah, it sounds like it. One of the things that, you know, that struck me when I first saw you come on screen in this, in this role is that it's very different from the roles that you're known for. You know, when I look at videos of, of Rick Macy, I don't make the direct connection that, that you would be the person to play him just because of the, the physicality of your previous roles. Um, how did this come about? And, um, and was it a leap of faith on either yours or, or Ray's part when it came to casting? Ray and I immediately connected when we met uh, for the reasons that I already told you. Uh, you know, we're both dads. Uh, we're both ex-college athletes. Uh, we both, I think, have, have, have experienced that full spectrum of what sports uh, can do, both good and bad. And, and we've been through it. You know, we both were sort of outdoing each other with sports metaphors. I think we both sort of approached the work very athletically. So we connected like that. But he was very clear. He didn't see me, you know, for the part. You know, I was uh, nearly 200 pounds. I just come off a Punisher. But I just knew this, this, the, the script resonated with me in such a deep way. And I really, really wanted to be a part of it. So I read for it and I love that. I love being able to read for roles. And it's, it's um, really, it's the only time as an actor, you get to sort of give your version of things where nobody else can touch it and it's all yours. And, and then, you know, it, it really makes you feel when you walk on the set that you earned your spot there. So I, I really dug that process. And yeah, you, you know, the physicality was really different. You know, I had to lose about 30 pounds. You, you know, I, I learned the game of tennis and played incessantly. And the, the, the accent was so, you know, just, you know, enormously specific. And, and um, but I think, look, there's an old kind of acting exercise that I, I, I hold, you know, very dear to me. And, and, you know, you always, you go and you write down every single thing that other people say about your character. And I think it's really also true in research. It's not about going to the person and sort of ask them how they want to be portrayed on screen. You talk to people that know them and you, you start to collect data. And um, one of the things that was just uniform in everybody that I talked to about Rick was just how fun he was. Serena said playing at the Macy Academy was one of the funnest times of her life. And I love that. I, I, I love the coaches that I had growing up that just made things fun. Everything was a game. It was a challenge. Um, he didn't mind being the butt of a joke. And, and so for me to be on set and making those young women laugh, even laugh at me, laugh at my short shorts, laugh at my mustache, like give it to me, you know, it was such a joy for me to play a character like that. And, you know, a lot of folks have said, you know, you normally play such tough guys. Look, I think Rick Macy is every bit as tough as any other character that I've played. I think, you know, we confuse these things with, you know, intimidation and brutality. You know, he's an enormously, you know, focused and committed and, and, and vital character, you know, but he, he, he practices in joy and fun and, and gamemanship. And um, I think those are totally, uh, you know, strong and tough characteristics. Tell me about your prep. I mean, did you did you spend much time with him, or was it more sort of talking to people that he's worked with, or what? What, what did you do to get into this character? Um, look, uh, kind of all of the above. Look, one of the things I love about this job 
the most is that, you know, you get to learn all these different trades. And I, I take that part of the work enormously seriously. When I'm playing a soldier, playing a cop, playing a scientist, you have to, you have to learn the trade. And, 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 and so for me, there's a, there's a tennis academy right here in Ojai, California, where I live called the Wheel Tennis Academy. And I start training uh, three to six hours every single day. Um, it's amazing. How much you can pick up uh, when you have great coaches and 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 you have that time and I'm uh, you know enormously grateful to, to to Ray you know being athletes we really wanted to get the tennis component right so I didn't just train in tennis I started to train in coaching they let me coach one of their junior national uh, nationally ranked players um, I call her the champ her name's uh, command so learning the vocabulary of coaching learning how to run drills how to feed how to understanding the psychology it's you know, I, I, um, boxing is a sport that's very important to me that I've been doing for a real long time. And there's this relationship between the trainer and um, the fighter that you have to have this intimate knowledge of your fighter. And it's the same thing in tennis, you know, the, the, the mastering the psychology. And these folks let me train there, train players there every day. And then they let me start coming and training folks in character, which was great because, um, you know, I was working with a, um, a wonderful dialect coach. And, um, you know, we really wanted to look, not that many people, you know, know who Rick Macy was, but I just thought I love projects that, you know, use sort of the, the sort of truth that truth is kind of the guiding light and, and trying to get things right. And I think when you read Zach Balin's script, so authentic and real and honest, you know, I really said, Hey, let's, let's try to bring Rick Macy to the screen. Let's try to walk like him and look like him and sound like him. And, um, you know, that accent is so specific where it's, you know, that part of Eastern Ohio and Kentucky where they meet, it's, it's this conglomeration of all these different things. So I really wanted to, you know, kind of get that right. So there's a lot of that kind of prep and, and that's the kind of prep I really love doing. It was a real joy. And then I think the emotionality of it really just lies in the fact that, um, you know, there was a, there was a scene in the movie that ultimately never made it in, but I hope it carries through. And, um, that was uh, at the end of the movie, he uh, in, in trying to get Richard to sign the contract and take the money, Rick says to him, hey, forget my 15%. Just take this money for the family. This will change your lives. And I love that. I love that he said that. I, it's not so important that it's in the movie or not in the movie, but the fact that that's ultimately who this man was and that he was willing to do that showed this profound love for this family and this profound love for these young women um, that he believed in as if they were his own. And I love that. I love teachers and, and, and coaches that form these kinds of relationships. You know, and I also love that it, it, it wasn't just sort of this one note positive guy. There were times where he definitely saw dollar signs and times where he definitely, you, you know, had, had um, different sides as it was with Richard. You know, I, I, I really love that this movie you know, really avoid sentimentality and, and, and spoon feeding sort of how we're supposed to feel about these folks. And these characters are bold enough to at times turn their back on the audience and challenge the audience. And, you know, that's real life and it's great. Yeah. Were you privy to when Venus and Serena, the real Venus and Serena um, actually saw the movie and, and how did you feel about waiting for their reaction? Look, I, I mean, absolutely just so humbled and, 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 and grateful you know, that, that they dug it, you know, I mean, that's ultimately, it's huge. You know, there's no words for, um, you, you know, the role that they've played in, 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 um, in the role that they continue to play in culture, in sports, um, they're, they're icons. And, um, 
you know, this story is so important. You know, I met Venus for the first time last night. It's just so good. She's such a lovely, uh, unbelievable person. And I, yeah, it's, you know, I was definitely, definitely very starstruck and, and, um, just, yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's great. And I, I love that they dig the film. Going back to sort of the scenes uh, between you and Will and sort of that interplay between um, Rick and Richard, those scenes are really fun. I mean, <laughs> basically, you're reacting to him not wanting to do things a certain way, and he's just sort of insisting on doing his things his way. What was it like filming those scenes, and what kind of direction did you get from Ray? Look, I think I, I think Ray, you know, and also just just coming off of another project with him, he he's just he's he's wide open. He he really encourages play. He encourages improvisation. He encourages surprising each other. We do so much. There's so many wonderful artists that put so much work into these few seconds between action and cut. And there is, um, I often look at the acting part of it as sort of controlling your proximity to action and cut, shaping where you're at up until those few sacred seconds that are between action and cut. And in this, because of the folks that were making this thing and because of the folks in front of the camera and behind of the camera, you know, it, it really never stopped. It was so fluid. You know, Will and I would continue to just sort of banter and poke fun at each other and argue and, you know, stay sort of in it at all times. I mean, that is my relationship with Will. And I love Will. You can't say enough. What he does on camera is staggering. It's amazing. Seeing it in real life, it's amazing. But the thing you don't see is, you know, behind the scenes that, again, he's just fostering this, you know, environment of, of creativity. And, and, you know, if he's going to do that, you know, it's not so weird staying in character, talking in your goofy accent when Will's doing it. And, you know, the girls, they, they continue to play because Will's doing it. And it really became this collective. That's what we wanted to be. We wanted to be in this world. You know, you spend enough time on set, you know, kind of working like that. It just becomes easy and fluid. And uh, these are both characters who are really used to being top dog. And they're really used to things going their way. But ostensibly... You know, Rick Macy, he, he works for the Williams. You know, he works for that family. He works for those young women. So he, you know, his, his, his hands are a bit tied. And, and as ridiculous as he thinks this guy is, and as insane as he thinks this process is, he believes in them. And ultimately, he comes around to fall into it and to believe in it himself. But it's always this nagging. It's always this thing. He's, he's so used to his way. So he's always fighting up against it. And I think one of the things that I, I, I was really grateful for is, you know, the scene, the, the scenes, but really the one scene, you know, specifically, you know, when Venus asked Rick to go and advocate for her and, and, and to, go, to go to Richard and say, I'm ready. And he's, I know you're ready. You're going to make me go talk. Okay, fine. I'll go talk. And he does it only out of love. And it's so clear he loves this young woman and he's going to go stand up for her, even though he might get you know, his ear blown out, you know, yelled at, he might, you know, he might, you know, suffer the wrath of Richard Williams, but he's got to do it. And, and I think it says so much about who he is and says so much about his respect for Richard, but his absolute adoration and love for Venus, which uh, was a really beautiful thing to, to, to be able to play. I'm really grateful for it. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned sort of Will kind of taking the lead in being Richard, you know, even, even when the cameras weren't rolling. I mean, was he just all Richard all the time? Pretty much. I mean, we kind of everybody was. And, and, and again, in not, um, 
there's nothing showy about it. There was nothing, you know, I've, I've seen, you know, I've been on sets where people kind of, you know, stay in character. I think this whole, you know, you know, term of method of acting, it's been so bastardized. It has nothing to do with what the original, you know, concept of, of what method acting really is. But, 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 you know, it's not, you know, when it's done, you know, really for in the spirit of play and the spirit of inclusivity and the spirit of a reverence for the project, it's really beautiful. And it's such a uh, off-putting and inviting thing. There's no pressure there. It makes things again, very fluid and makes things very alive. And, and in this particular project, it just, it facilitated such joy and such community. So, you know, again, you know, it's real, I love working that way. And when you've got a group of people that are all working that way, it just makes it, so much easier for it, 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 it. You're you're encouraging. It's just constantly saying, "Come play, come play." Camera's off. I'm still here. What do you got? And uh, I love that. I love that. And and I'm I, you know I just think it's a beautiful way to work. On a related note, but like a little bit more superficial. But did you keep the bowl cut and the mustache? Yeah. When you're off camera, or do you put that on like every t- every time? Yeah, no, I mean that's my real hair. You know, that's that's you know a lot of people think it's a wig. It is definitely not a wig. It's definitely a real mustache. And you know my you know not, you know we shut down for six months. We would go to Will's house, have a meal, and talk about the project. And we we kept rehearsing. And I told him I'm keeping this thing. Like, you know, this really looks like it's not you know like not letting up anytime soon. I'm keeping this mustache. I'm not letting this thing go. You kept it the whole six months. The whole six months, my kids would yank on it. My wife would make out with me. You know, like it was such a uh, subject of ridicule in my home. You know, but uh, again, you know, as long as I could keep those young young women laughing, you know, I I, I was into it. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, well, you are a fall MVP this year, not just with King Richard. Um, you know, you're you were in Small Engine Repair, which is the film adaptation of a play that you performed in years ago. You're in Many Saints of Newark. Obviously, the Sopranos prequel. And in December, you're in The Unforgivable, starring Sandra Bullock. How do you feel about being so ubiquitous this season? Ubiquitous? Wow. Uh, <laughs> I mean that in a good way. I mean that I in a good way. It. No, I, I look, I, honestly, you know, I, I don't really have, I, I don't know that I have an answer for that besides the fact that I can't begin to tell you how like staggered and, and, and humbled and grateful I am that, that I get to do this. I, I, I really, truly love doing it. I am so just enormously grateful that, that I feed my family by doing something that I love. I know how rare that is. I know how lucky I am. Um, I've said before, you know, I, I remember being a kid and being in some principal's office or some doctor's office, a little kid. I remember reading this little cartoon Babe Ruth book and there was this sort of Babe Ruth. He was leaning against the stadium and he was popping a hot dog in his mouth. And this guy said, babe, what are you doing? He said, I get paid to play baseball and eat hot dogs. What could be better? And, you know, I, I really, I, I love this. I love doing it from the second I stepped on stage. I just, I love doing this. So the fact that I get to do it, I'm, I'm just grateful. And, you know, look, I, I've got three young kids along with my wife that are the, the, the center of my universe. And it's their name I'm, I, I put on this work. And, and so I, I just, I really, I, I don't have any choice but... You know, I got to just kind of pour everything that I have into it. And I'm grateful that I get these opportunities to, to do that. And um, as long as I do, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep on trucking. 
I hope so. <laughs> because we love because we love it. We really enjoy it. We're big fans here at EW. Last question. I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. But, um, you know, King Richard, as you know, had an amazing debut at Telluride. And the reception has just been great so far as you guys have been making the rounds. Um, it's definitely a front run- runner in the awards race. This is the Awardist por- Podcast. Um, how do you feel about being on this ride and the possibility of getting an op this year? Oh, wow. I mean, uh, I don't know how to judge, you know, those kinds of things. I don't, I, I don't know how to really approach them. When I look at what Will has done and I, when I look at what my, my castmates has done, when I look at what Ray has done, what Robert did, what Zach did, I'm blown away. It's crazy to say this, but I've been doing this now for a long time. You know, I still am just as hungry and um, I feel just as sort of, uh, it's just as vital to me now as it ever has been. And um, I know that this one was special. I just know. I just knew. I knew making it. I knew. I know seeing it. I know just from what it's about, how it's approached, um, how it's dealt with, and how it was made, and, and the community that was formed. It's special, um, and and I, I know that these folks are special. I like I said before. I'm really, I'm really an ensemble based guy, and and I believe that you know you're you're as good as the group of the people that you're with, and 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 this group of people is unlike any other group that I've worked with. I, I, I think when you, th- when you look at the, the actresses, all of them that play the, the sisters in this movie, what they do is extraordinary. The spirit is extraordinary. And, you know, there was just this spirit, again, of, of, of collaboration that's, just, that's undeniable. So, look, I'm, I'm rooting for everybody, and, and um, I think that that would be awesome. But, um, you know, I got to bring my, my, my three young kids to that premiere. And for me... You know, that's the win. I got to take them to a movie. And this morning when I was driving them back at five in the morning to get back to school at Ojai, you know, they were all talking about it. They all learned something from this movie. They're all better. They're all better because they saw this movie. And, I, you know, I've never been in anything like that before. And, and I've never been in anything where I can take my kids to, you know. <laughs> and so, like, you know, I, I, I think all this, we're, we're already at such a, you know, unbelievable win. And so, you know, look, I, I, you know, even the just the, the the conversation is absolutely you know beyond humbling. So that's <laughs> that's all I can really say about that. I think. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to John Bernthal for sitting down with us. King Richard is out now and available to stream. And that's it for this episode of The Awardist. If you like what you heard, subscribe rate the podcast, and leave us an award-winning review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation with us going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials at EW on Twitter and Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag us at ClarissaNYC1 and Josh Rothkoff. We'll see you next week. This episode of The Awardist Podcast is hosted by Clarissa Cruz and Josh Rothkoff, produced by Chanel Johnson and Sammy Junio. Executive produced by Shana Crockmall. Edited and mixed by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening.